Welcome to Moments the Podcast. We're your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> there it is. Uh, how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm okay. Uh, I'm wondering when we can go back to scripted introductions. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't a reality that's going anywhere. Let the existential dread of it just envelop you. I'm getting really sick of my own face and my own voice. I don't know about you. Maybe you're not doing so many uh, video conferences as I am, but I've never been more sure of how I sound and what I look like, and it's awful. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. There's nothing worse than having to look yourself in the eye as you talk (laughs) nonsense. There's this, uh, I'm sitting in my kitchen, and there's this kind of like lawn area out back, that is for the apartment complex next door. And there's this man who, over the past week, has had a parade of extremely attractive women just, like, having a picnic on this lawn with him. And it's a different woman every day. Whoa. And they're all beautiful. And he lays out, like, a really elaborate picnic, and there's, like, dappled sunlight. And, I mean... How has he hoodwinked so many gorgeous women into flouting the rules of civilization to dine with him? I mean, he must have some kind of, like, Tinder honey trap going. (laughs) (laughs) It was worth it. That's what they always say. It was worth it. Yeah, the numbers out of Brussels have been pretty alarming. And yet you're telling me like spring has fully sprung and people are sort of parading through the parks. Yeah, this guy is the nexus of those alarming numbers. (laughs) Yeah, you found the ground zero. (laughs) He's like like, culling the population of beautiful women. (laughs) Yeah, so that's what's up with me. So tell me about your interview with Johanna Feitman. Well, it was a great privilege. I'm such a fan. Um, yeah, I'm not even like, you know, a person particularly tapped into her music career, which I gather has sort of ended. Um, now she's she's a fully committed writer, but even just on the level of her writing, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just, you know, a bit swoony for for the voice that, that she promotes through the page. So... It was a huge honor, and uh, you know, this is a good moment for kind of asking your heroes if they'll talk to you because a lot of them will. They're at home, <laughs> and uh, so excuses have been narrowed. No, but um, we had a great conversation. She was—it's strange. She's uniquely in this position of um, being in New York. We could hear sirens going around her apartment as we spoke. There's kind of an ambient anxiety to the conversation, which felt sort of appropriate. Mm. She's also a small business owner. She runs a, a salon. Mm-hmm. So she's she's had the uniquely difficult and saddening, you know, uh, responsibility of letting people go. Mm-hmm. She's got a young child. She has, a, so she's homeschooling, I gather. She's got a partner who got sick with COVID. Mm-hmm. So she's like, and then she's a writer and, you know, uh, <laughs> working on a novel, a dystopic one at that. So it's like as though she checked, she checked every possible box for like relevance to right. the pandemic and had 
despite all of that, um, a great sense of calm and clarity in her as she spoke. Um, and, you know, we ended on this charming note about her missing the British tea collection at the Met. So um, her desires are sort of where she left them, I think. But um, nevertheless, this was a beautiful conversation that I was able to kind of take towards um some channels, you know, I'm always curious to talk to a, a person who writes for the New Yorker about the editorial process. Mm-hmm. Um, she's also a contributing editor at Art Forum and uh, a frequent contributor to four columns. And so she's got a lot of insight on sort of the the trust that can be developed remotely between writer and editor. And, and I wanted to kind of uh, thumb that with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, just to be like, adjacent in any way to her is extremely exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's your relationship to her work? Is it mostly the music then? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's like riot girl, queer royalty. I'm very, very glad that you did this interview. <laughs> uh, well, I did have to hold myself back from asking like, how do you get so cool? You know, just like what's what's the yeah, trick? <laughs> and also this kind of capacity that someone would have, and you see it with a lot of, with a lot of, well, not a lot, of course, but you see it with some people where they can just kind of transfer. I mean, that brilliance or um, ability to be insightful and energize people translates to so many different kind of facets of their life, and so you can be like yeah, like I'm just this amazing musician and now I'm just this amazing salon owner and now I'm just this amazing art writer. It's like to have so many lives and careers in in one life is so extraordinary and uh, mm-hmm. aspirational. Yeah, indeed. And here I am just locked into this particular skin suit, <laughs> this particular <laughs> narrow talent. <laughs> And on that note, here's Sky Gooden with Johanna Feitman. So thank you for doing this, really. I'm, I was so thrilled when you came through. How, how busy or unbusy are you? Like, how rare is it that, <laughs> that you should be able to drop into a podcast and conversation like this? Are you feeling like you have time right now or not really? Well, you know, that's so funny. I, I've been thinking about that a lot um, because the the working from home part of this you know as someone who writes a lot that part isn't new but since the other part of my time is often going to see exhibitions at galleries or museums and I can't do that you know ostensibly I have more time <laughs> but I I do have trouble kind of figuring out what my day is and um Also, I'm really starting to understand that not only going to see art is important, but this, the walking is when I kind of do a lot of the thinking for what I'll write later or, you know, um, so I'm finding that to be really hard. Um, But yeah, time is funny. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know we haven't met, but I, I can only assume the metabolic rate at which you were operating before was, I mean, I'm, I'm 
fairly confident you were out in the world a ton, you know, between your writing for Talk of the Town and your art criticism and the salon that I think you're still co-running, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I have a closed hair salon with with a business partner. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's actually incredibly stressful and difficult. Um, That's definitely taking up a lot of my time, sort of negotiating, like, how do you keep your business in business or in a condition to reopen Mm -hmm. at some point. Um, So yeah, I'm definitely juggling that with really the same amount of writing as I was doing before, but yes, the, (laughs) I'm certainly metabolizing information and, and input very differently without, you know, getting out there to physically, experience the world. Right. So those are some distinctions I want to sort of burrow into with you, but maybe to start, are you able to write in a focused way right now? I I gather you're working on a novel. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, what is your experience of writerly attention through this? And has writing been a kind of bomb or, you know, has it been like pulling your brain from the fire? Well, I find when I can actually get into writing, you know, into the the zone, as they say, it's wonderful to, you know, be in touch with myself and to be absorbed in thinking about something external to myself and external to the current crisis. So I think there is some reprieve for me in writing if I can get there, you know, and it's very hard to I'm sure you know, to work with a lot of interruptions, whether that's, you know, other things to take care of, or for me, that's having a school-age kid at home on top of everything else, you know? So it's about finding stretches of time without interruption. For me, it has to feel somehow meaningful, um, and I, by that, I don't mean it, that it has to be about COVID-19 or it has to be necessarily super serious, but I can't really lose myself in something that's, it can't be a distraction. Do you know what I mean? Like it has to be mm-hmm. somehow an entry point to a deeper way of thinking about things. Is your novel a tool to do that right now? I'm not sure if you are ready to talk about it or kind of suggest what it's, what it was meant to do before this hit, but has it changed? Well, I mean, in that, in that my novel was somewhat dystopian. (laughs) So you're right on. Well, I I shouldn't, (laughs) I shouldn't refer to it in the past tense, but some things that were exaggerated or, or verging on satire that I was working with are now just too close to, present day realities. So I'm, I'm grappling with that, but as far as writing fiction, not even just, you know, with current sheltering in place restrictions, but just in my life in general, it's pretty hard for me to stick to a daily practice. So I basically, you know, I have a hourglass of sand hourglass and, um, it's just 10 minutes and, Usually, I'll get into it and write for much longer than 10 minutes, but mm-hmm. I tell myself I, 
I only have to do 10 minutes. And if I'm just like not feeling it and it's arduous and I'm too distracted, I just write, you know, stuff that feels like garbage to me. And then, you know, the sands run out and I, I'm free. (laughs) Right. Free from a a self-appointed commitment that is fearsome. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm, I do not find writing fiction to be like a glorious escape at all. Mm. Well, is this your first time, by the way? Like, how did this uh, come about from art writing or, or was this a separate track all along? I think that I've had sort of a convoluted career with all kinds of different endeavors. So does it come from art writing in a way? Like, I feel like in writing so much for magazines, I've gained a certain confidence and I've also started feeling... I'm not going to say bored because I don't feel bored with writing, but um, how would I describe it? Um, Like a little bit impatient with the form of reviewing. And I think that from wanting to write more long form extended pieces where I'm not really trying to squeeze it into the, (laughs) the allotted word count, um, between that and being tired of um, being accurate all the time, not that I am always accurate, but I certainly strive to be. Um, I, I think that like there's something about fiction and that you're not quite so responsible to your subject matter. I find that really appealing. Mm-hmm. By the way, did you always write longhand? Have you always used that? approach or is this unique to the process of writing fiction or unique to pandemic writing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no. So for many, many years, um, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the artist's way, but it's this sort of Mm -hmm. 80s or maybe 90s new agey book by Julia Cameron. That's sort of about discovering your artist self and, uh, you know, freeing your creativity. And one of the tool, the major tools of it is, is called morning pages. And you are supposed to wake up and as soon as you can write, you know, three pages in a notebook of continuous sort of just uncensored. I've done that for, I guess, decades. And sometimes in writing those three pages, I'll have a lot of usable material for whatever I'm working on in my real writing. So it's a pretty great tool or resource for me. I mean, I think the pandemic is only sort of dramatizing my tendencies, but I have been writing more in notebooks. I think because really bad news brings out the (laughs) agitated, anxious Twitter checker in me, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And if you're fighting against constant interruptions already, you really don't need to indulge masochistic tendencies towards checking the news all day. No, indeed. But what occurs to me, at least personally for for my, I write letters by longhand and I'm a fairly frequent letter writer, but usually if I say something I'm unhappy with, it means I have to kind of scrap the page and, and literally start over, which... Um, slows you down. (laughs) So what, what does it look like to greet that challenge where you can't just backspace and start again or tweak a a sentence mid mid flow, but have to, I don't know, maybe commit more or slow yourself down. 
Well, my, I mean, my, my notebook pages are pretty wild. Like, you know, lines and lines crossed out and arrows and, you know, inserts. Mm -hmm. And, um, if I were writing a letter, that would be different. You know, I would probably tear up like 20 pages, um, before (laughs) having one I was happy with. But I mean, I just find that it slows things down in a way that's actually good for me. And I really get a lot out of transcribing quotations by hand. Um, I'm writing about this series of historical fiction novels that I really like. And I find a lot of calm in transcribing the passages that interest me. I think that it forces you to really get to know how each word is chosen and how each sentence is is constructed and you notice different things in the text. It's not like I ha- I can report any sort of stunning miraculous results from this process. It's just I think it just has to do with what works for my nervous system and my ability to engage in and deeper thoughts about something. No, it sounds like a very healthy writing practice, <laughs> truly. Um, one that I think many of our listeners will be envying. <laughs> I need to think of any writing practice as healthy. <laughs> and yet, we know there are unhealthy versions. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's nice that we're sort of naturally on this um, subject, because I did want to ask you a few questions about your relationship to writing, but uh, and solitude, um, but also to the writer-editor channel that we form in the best cases um, as editors and as writers in my cases both roles alternatively I don't know if you do any editing yourself um, but given that you're contributing to such storied um, sort of iconic in terms of their uh, reputation uh, for forming those relationships these venerated publications like the New Yorker and Art Forum I would just be really curious to hear you talk a bit about your experience of being edited at those magazines and if indeed it has been your experience as it has been for me, luckily, um, that really generative uh, trust-laden relationships can open up between a writer and editor that where, where in fact, you never meet or you yeah. rarely do. Uh, <laughs> right. It's a pretty uncanny thing. Yes. I feel... Totally. Like I've had a charmed life with my editors. I hear horror stories and I don't relate. You know, my entrance to like writing cultural criticism was first through Book Forum and then Art Forum. And really between the people I worked with, Dave O'Neill at Book Forum and then lots of different people at Art Forum. Those two publications really, I feel like, gave me so much encouragement and support to, it sounds corny, but to, you know, be myself and develop my own voice. Um, You know, any kind of input from my editors has always been, um, especially from Art Forum and Book Forum, has just been to push me further into the direction I was going, you know, just... Mm -hmm. really supportive. Um, 
I mean, I love being edited. I don't, <laughs> I really mm-hmm. relish and feel grateful for the opportunity to make a piece better. I'm grateful for all anyone who like takes the time to think about what I've written. I mean, Andrea Scott at the New Yorker is also incredible. And the sheer volume of writing for the goings on about town section has, <laughs> I don't, I mean, it's like boot camp or something, you know, these mm. 120 to 200 words format is pretty brutal at the beginning. And, um, you know, then you learn the tricks and it gets a little easier, but I think that Andrea is so good at just knowing when the last line needs to be a little better and her edits are just genius. You know, she sprinkles the glitter on everything. Mm. Oh, it's lovely to hear that confirmed. <laughs> the hallowed halls of the New Yorker editorial department. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. You know, it's not like uh, people are patting you on the back all the time, but there's enough of that, I guess, <laughs> to keep you doing it. And then the other publication I write for frequently is Four Columns, which is mm-hmm. a, a really special online publication that I love so much and um it's an honor to write for them and it's um yeah I feel very trusted there so again it's just about finding the most precise way to say what I'm saying and I get those nudges it, that's exactly where I wanted to kind of go with you because it does not even knowing that you'd had <laughs> hoping, but not knowing that you had had successful relationships of this kind, because it strikes me lately. I think I'm, I'm sort of pausing on this because the fury and pace at which a lot of the operating world has taken up video conferencing and zoom, um, which has been, uh, a total grind for anybody who's had to kind of pop into that channel and stay there for long swaths of the day. And there does seem to be this lacking pulse, right? Like it's a cold body that you're sharing there. Mm-hmm. And editors and writers, I think, have had found, you know, a long time ago, had found a way to to keep a heartbeat in these remote communications. And I wonder if it's simply because we're meeting on the same stage or meeting in a text, which ideally of course has its own heartbeat too. And so you're sort of just sharing in the, the life of that, but I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm just curious about, you know, if, if anything that we could sort of take from that relationship and graft onto um, a world that's struggling with, with uh, the missing pieces of true connectivity. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting that you were just talking about loving to write letters. And I think that sometimes you can have these really great exchanges in the, in the bubbles, as I say, you know, like in the um, comments with editors that are just very sweet and reminders that I'm on the same team as my editors. And so um, there's a real camaraderie expressed Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. in the little changes. And then over the years, you need to say less about the little changes because you just have an understanding and there's more space for actual, the actual exchange of ideas. 
the uh, I think it's Art in America editor William Smith uh, said something recently that stuck with me. I wanted to kind of pass the quote forward and see what you thought. He said that art criticism is usually a secondary experience, a discussion of work that exists in a museum or gallery. During a pandemic, the situation is different. Art criticism is a primary way for people to engage with art. That's a responsibility we have to take seriously. So I guess I'd love to know, I mean, I know that your focus right now, it sounds um, like your focus is largely on fiction, but does this feel true to you? And what value does art criticism or writing have for you in a time like this? The New Yorker's goings-on section is sort of soldiering on and reviewing online exhibitions and online projects. So I've continued to do that. Um, And there's definitely a lot to think about there, you know, because I'm interested in the form of the online exhibition, what it can do and and um, when it's interesting or not. I mean, as a sort of separate issue from our current you know, situation where it's basically the only way we can see exhibitions. Um, When you're considering what shows to review online, is it okay if it's just kind of a clunky slideshow of the images that would have been available to see on the walls of the gallery and the, you know, maybe a couple of installation shots that were taken on you know, March 14th or something, <laughs> we're definitely using different standards and and kind of making things up as we go, I think. But I still consider, at least in, for that part of my what I do, like the very short form stuff, I'm still basically recommending things to people. Like my writing isn't replacing the experience of them viewing the art. We're both seeing the same website. I mean, I, I would like to write... I think about the Agnes Pelton show, which is the last, the the show at the Whitney, which really blew me away. And it was the last thing that I saw before everything shut down in New York. And it kind of makes my heart hurt <laughs> thinking of how to approach that because I'm sure an online version of that show would be incredible too. But having seen it in person, I I can't imagine reviewing an online version of it, you know? I don't think I'm really answering your question. (laughs) Is there any aspect of culture for which you have renewed attention right now? I mean, today in particular, or the the past few weeks, actually, I've been working on this piece about um, historical fiction. So I've been really thinking about the nature of escapism and what does that really mean? You know, because I think when we are looking at culture, you know, what books do we want to read? What TV shows? It's not that we're looking necessarily for something to cancel out our feelings. Well, it's different for everybody, you know, as individuals, but I was in a film watching group of about five people and we decided to watch Shoah, which is this for people who don't know, yeah. it's like nine plus hours of this of Landsman's film about the Holocaust and interviewing survivors of concentration camps as well as Eastern European villagers who were living on the outskirts of the camps and also German officers. So this is like a incredibly intense, epic 
film to watch, you know, and we watched it in two parts and discussed it. And I mean, it's perverse to think of that as escapism. I was trying to like explain this feeling. It's not one of comfort, but it's, it's one of this vast perspective on the human experience. There's something about how long it was and how immersed I was. And I think people are like, oh, you know, I was immersed in another world. But with Shoah, you're not. You're immersed in the most awful part of this world. So I have no thesis to <laughs> propose to you about this, but I just think that it's very, it's very complicated. And I think it's interesting to pay attention to our desires in this moment and like what feelings we seek, because I don't think we're seeking to be happy. That's provocative. When you say that, what do you mean? We don't, there is a pandemic and happening. And I mean, right now I can hear a siren out my window. So Mm -hmm. do I want to feel happy? No, it's just, it's, devastating. I feel devastated. And I want to honor that and hold space for people to have these true feelings that are truly just human feelings that can't be avoided. Um, Yeah. I was listening to an interview with Naomi Klein yesterday and on long form podcast, and she was talking about um, her media consumption and, and the interlocutor asked, you know, are you, you know, exhibiting any discipline around how much you're taking in? And basically, aside from trying to sort of shelter her seven-year-old from atmospherically taking in too much stress, she said, no, and why would I? Um, we should be paying attention to this. And and she talked about how unusual it is. Normally, when there's a calamity on this level, I mean, it, historically, anyway, you know, either an island is wiped out such that there's no electricity and, you know, distracting yourself isn't actually an option <laughs> or um, you get the idea. Like mm-hmm. the, there typically isn't the ch- the chance to burrow down into a binge watch or bake sourdough um, for five weeks until the anxiety passes or to qu- help quell it. So she was sort of saying, you know, like it, it, this is best exemplified if you pick up a Sunday copy of the New York Times right now and the front section is just every awful thing <laughs> imaginable. And then every section thereafter is sort of like how to get a six pack during a pandemic and um, what to do with your savings yeah. from not eating out so much. And she's like, I can't. I can't imagine a moment in history where these things have, have shown such high relief from each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just think, and I don't mean this in some kind of like terrible bright side way. I don't think there's a bright side to this. I just think there's an opportunity to learn about ourselves and it's not unprecedented. Do you know what I mean? Not in human history. Um, So I think in that sense, thinking about the past is very wonderful and rich. Mm-hmm. Not happy, but just, you know, <laughs> wonderful in the sense of like finding wonder in a new way in these experiences that once felt so alien and, mm-hmm. you know, 
my partner got very sick from COVID. So she's feeling better now, a lot better. But that was obviously my most, you know, intense and urgent um, way of relating to this crisis. And then secondly, I would really say that as a small business owner, I've never experienced such wild uncertainty and helplessness. You know, it's it's a business that employs 14 or 15 people. So I never imagined laying everybody off. It's just been really fucking crazy. I mean, you know. Yeah, I do. And then, then you know, so in the, this, in that way, the art writing's really like, oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. These things get shoved into their perspectival <laughs> points, don't they? <laughs> I mean, I guess it's just what you like train your attention on <laughs> becomes very intense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, personally, I'm finding these things sort of dovetailed because the small business that I'm fighting for, you know, is a place where writing lives and right so I've been you know it's a very odd feeling I've um experienced the last couple weeks of near frustration that when I you know have a bit of money to burn and like it's not over yet I'm I'm like (laughs) knocking on writers doors trying to press them into service to have like something really original to say Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) in this particular moment and there's sort of a lot of them are stunned into a place of near paralysis right now or just feeling um too distracted or you know too anxious to get anything on the page and what would you say anyway and and so there's this feeling of sort of but wait we're (laughs) we're supposed to be the lighthouse and nobody's bringing me a bulb yeah (laughs) it's one thing to be the producer of that kind of writing it's another thing to be the writer of that kind of writing it's not an easy moment to do so well I was just giving myself kind of a pep talk about I have like a a few deadlines kind of in a bottleneck in the next couple of weeks. And it's just, I just think now is not the time to pressure yourself to be original. Um, Mm. I don't think there's like, I really don't think there's something original to say right now, you know? Mm. And that's, that's where like all the people with the hot takes come from, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) this is the time to just admit that they're, or not admit, but kind of like drill down on what's common to us and just being honestly reflective and and not be part of the, you know, contrarian industrial complex or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Think think peace machinery. Yeah. It's a nightmare. And sometimes I feel comforted that like we're all kind of in the same boat um yeah and I'm like well we're all you know this is happening to all of us so it can't happen (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then sometimes you know I just feel like this is happening to all of us and we're all totally fucked and we're gonna be bankrupted yeah as businesses and as individuals I mean most small business owners I know have business loans that they've personally guaranteed. So this could be the new medical debt, the new college debt. Mm. That's a, I know we're not ending we necessarily. We just brought it way down. 
I apologize. <laughs> um, here's something that might be a little fun for, for us to think through for a second. This is a question we're bringing to every guest for this season. Yeah. And it is a little bit romantic, but if you could visit any space, like a landmark or a museum or a monument during this quarantine, knowing that this would be your only opportunity to be alone there, which would it be? The Met, of course. I've always... <laughs> I want to be one of the kids in the mixed up files of Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler, and I want to spend the night at, at the Met. <laughs> I miss the Met so much. Mm. I just, I was looking at their virtual tour of the reopened <laughs> British galleries. <laughs> I can't believe I'm missing the teapot exhibition. <laughs> the podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae, and assistant production from Mitra Shiram. We would like to thank Johanna Feitman for her contribution to this season. And readers, listeners, we do need you. So please consider making a one-time donation to Momus by contacting me, Sky Gooden, at momus.ca, or a monthly donation for as little as $1 or $5 per month through patreon.com slash momusart. If you like our work, help us continue to make it. This has been episode 19 of Momus the Podcast.